All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We're in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how you doing today? Andrew, I'm doing great. I can't believe that uh, you managed to get this guest. We're going to go right into it. I didn't think that you'd get him. Yep. Um, Andrew being the young gun here, he says, uh, I'll try to reach out and, uh, and it works. So this is all Andrew. So uh, introduce our legendary guest. Yeah, today we're excited to have with us Cam Connor. So Cam began playing between the MJHL and WCHL for a few years before playing his first full season in the WCHL, then was later crowned Rookie of the Year. After his 47-goal, 91-point campaign, he went on to be drafted fifth overall in the 1974 NHL draft by the Montreal Canadiens and fourth overall in the World Hockey Association. From there, Cam began his journey through the former WHA League, Playing with the teams such as the Phoenix Roadrunners from 74 to 76 and the Houston Arrows from 76 to 78. After four years in the WHA, Cam got his first piece of NHL action with Montreal during the 1978-1979 campaign and later that year went on to help the Canadians win the Stanley Cup. Cam continued to play in the HL for the next few years, suiting up for other teams such as the Edmonton Oilers and New York Rangers and finished, uh, finished his playing career with the Tulsa Oilers in 1983-1984. We have a lot to talk about today. We're excited. I'm winded, but I'm sure everybody wants to hear him talk instead. So please welcome our guest today, Cam Connor. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me as a guest. Awesome. Okay, so Kim, we're going to pick it right up in 1974. I can't believe this. Andrew, you said it, but I'm going to do it again. So Kim, you're with the uh, Flin Flon Bombers. 65 games, 47 goals, 91 points, 376 penalty minutes. So, oh, and by the way, 13 postseason points in seven games. Incredible. How could you score that many points and be in a penalty box for that long? It's incredible. Well, for myself, um, I was always a tough guy. And if you've ever followed my podcast, you know that I was best friends with Rowdy Roddy Piper. And so... Rod and I met about 16, 17 years old, and uh, we've been street fighters. And uh, we'd put the gloves on every now and then, and uh, we put the gloves on on the ice as well. And Rod, uh, he just gave me a lot of confidence. He really did. He made me feel good about myself. And that's the kind of coach I need that will try to get the best out of you through positive reinforcement and not negative reinforcement. And I believe that most people will grow on a pat on the back and positive reinforcement versus yelling at you. When I played with the Montreal, Scotty Bowman was a yeller and screamer, and I just don't respond very well to that. So when I was in Flin Flon, um, there was, I was uh, 19 years old and I was a rookie in the Western Hockey League, which is the highest junior league in Canada. And uh, my coach, his name was Patty Janelle, which was the same coach as Bobby Clark, the great Bobby Clark had. And he's from Flin Flon. And Flin Flon is in northern Manitoba. And um, our closest game was a nine-hour bus ride away. And uh, <laughs> that's, that, that is our closest game. And uh, we had to work in the mines when, you know, Flin Flon at the time was a mining town of about 10,000 people. And if you played for the hockey team and you were 19 years old, you didn't have a choice. You had to go to work in the mines. 
So the first day that I went to, to work in the mines, they give you a hard hat with a power pack and a, and a, and a light on your helmet and, um, and steel-toed boots, uh, steel-toed rubber boots and a shovel and down you go. And my first day of work, I was 3,750 feet underground. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, it's not, safety wasn't the buzzword back in those days. Oh man. And, and so if you went just walking around to uh, explore the mine, which the hockey players did, if there was tunnels going every which way. And if you walked down the wrong tunnel or you were walking in the main tunnel, you would hear explosions and you'd see a bunch of smoke coming out of these tunnels. And so when you came up from the mines about four or five hours later and you just blew your nose, it was black from all that crap that you were breathing in down there. And so on the hockey side, so in the afternoon, we, you know, we'd have our lunch. We were billeted at somebody's house and they would make you a lunch. And so you'd eat it. And then you go to the practice rink and you would skate for two hours. And um, so when I was trying out for the team, um, I've always been aggressive playing hockey. So when I got into junior at 16 or 17, I just played the body. I was a football player and I loved the contact. And so I just carried that over into hockey. And if you play the body, you're going to get in fights. It's that simple. And so I got in my share of fights and I wasn't, I was afraid. Like every, every time I fought, I was fighting for my life. I didn't know if I could fight or not, but I was willing and I did pretty damn well. And so, <clears throat> you know, my first couple of years in junior, I didn't get a lot of ice time. Um, but when it got rough, you know, they would certainly put me on the ice I was just happy to be on the ice and I wouldn't go to try to get somebody. I would just run somebody who had the puck and then that would start things. And so when I got to Flin Flon, um, Patty Janelle, he, we had about a two week, two and a half week training camp. And I remember traditionally at training camps, what they would do back in those days is the first day or two or three on the ice, they wouldn't work you very hard. And then the second day, they'd work you a little bit harder. And the third day would, you know, so they give you a little time to get acclimated and uh, a little bit of timing and so on. Not Patty Janelle. The very first morning you got on the ice, he worked us unbelievably hard. Now I trained all summer and I never had a quit attitude. And uh, the guys that came into Flin Flon, they didn't have a lot of money, uh, the hockey team. So they put us up um, in the hockey rink. It was attached to a curling rink. So they put cots out for us. So 60 of us were laying on cots. That's where we lived for two or three weeks and slept on these cots. And so he would work us in the morning. And in the afternoon, he'd work us just as hard. <clears throat> and we'd go back and we'd say, each other, holy cow, this is a tough training camp. The next day, He'd work us even harder than the day before, if that was possible. And so we said, holy cow. And then I find out later, um, you know, so after the second night, we'd wake up in the morning and there's probably 15 empty cots. And I talked to the coach. I said, how come you guys work? He said, what I try to do, he said, I want to work you guys hard. And he said, and I want to see the guys that really want to play hockey here and who doesn't. Because the guys that leave, 
are the guys that uh, I, I wouldn't want them on my team and the guys that are willing to push through all the hard work, they really want to be here. So he said, I let those guys cut themselves. And I thought that was brilliant. Wow. And then after these guys all left, the practices were much easier. Okay. And so, so, you know, so mm -hmm. this coach and I got along and he always liked aggressive styles. And when I was 17, there was a Winnipeg team, which is where I was from, which is their closest game nine hours away. Flint Fawn always, always, always had a tough team. And um, so I was brought up by the Winnipeg team at the end of the season. Um, they'd ask other junior hockey players before me, well, hey, we need some players. Let's go up to Flint Fawn for the last five games. And these guys all turned them down. And I never followed hockey. I didn't know Flint Fawn was tough. So they invited me up there at 17 to play against the Flint Fawn Bombers. And again, I just played my ordinary game. I didn't know who was who. I ran everybody and I was aggressive. So now I'm 19 years old and the coach says to me, you know, we got you, Cam, because I was wondering who is this guy at 17 years old running all of my hockey players that are older <laughs> than him. So anyways, I went to training camp in good shape and I worked hard. And um, the coach at the end of training camp, he said, we're going to have three or four assistant uh, captains this year and you're going to be one of them well I was never given that kind of responsibility and so I was just tickled pink and then after a week the league said you can't have all assistant captains you got to have a captain now the other assistant captains had been there for three years already four years that played in that league and so he named me as the captain and again, nobody has ever shown that kind of confidence in me. So I just told myself that I would always be first in every practice. I'd work harder than anybody else. And in a game, it was like, you know, you were like my teammates were a flock of sheep and I was a guard dog. And so <laughs> if you started pushing around, Andrew, I'm getting in there first. I'm fighting that guy for you, Andrew. Like that, if I was on the ice, and that's just the way I played. And our coach told us because it was a nine hour bus ride, you know, from the closest cities, which was a, a city that the great Clark Gillies played out of. It's called Regina, Saskatchewan, and Winnipeg. They were about a nine hour bus ride. And other teams had longer to play or to travel to get there. So he said, just think about this. I want to make it rough on these hockey players when they get the flint flan. I don't care what the score is after the first period. You just run the hell out of those guys. I don't care if they're beating us for nothing. I don't care. Run them every, that whole first period. Well, I said, I could do that. <laughs> and so after, uh, you know, probably, I don't know, two weeks of uh, playing um, after the first eight games, I had no points and 82 penalty minutes plus a two-game suspension. And uh, that that two-game suspension was because when I was at 19, again, from hanging around with Ron and, and having to scrap as much as I did in the streets, I just could look at you, and I just knew I could take that guy. I just knew it. And so I had that confidence. And so this guy on the ice – he was trying to get at me and throwing the linesman around. And 
I was just hoping we could get at each other. And we both got kicked out of the game. And I was pissed. And so I'm in my dressing room. He's in his dressing room. The game starts. So I walked over to his dressing room with my equipment on, my skates on, and I beat him up. <laughs> and so I got a two-game suspension. Now, you know what you would get today for doing something like that, oh, right? Assault charges, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so like I said, no points after eight games in 82 penalty minutes. And at the end of the year, like you gave my stats, I had 91 points in almost 400 penalty minutes. And the reason I did so well is because I had no points after eight game. The coach continued to play me. And what I did and not did it, I didn't do it on purpose, is that all of a sudden you got a little bit more room out there because it's like Muhammad Ali says, nobody's afraid of a tough guy, but everybody's afraid of a crazy man. Yeah. So I just ran everybody. Every time they had the puck, I'm going to hit you. I'm not trying to get the puck. And so by playing that style, you know, the other players would read in the papers and I'm sure they would say, who's this Connor Scott? He's got, you know, this many penalty minutes. And so they see me play and all of a sudden I needed that little extra second or two with the pocket. So instead of them taking my body, they would reach with their stick to maybe try to poke check me. And that gave me that extra time. So um, because of the coach having so much confidence in me, naming me captain and me feeling responsible for how the team made out and, and taking care of my teammates. Um, and I also know that I never planned to be a professional hockey player that I, I, I made the provincial all-star teams, you know, playing in an older league um, in football, like the guys were two years older than me. And I made the provincial all-star baseball. I was one of the top hitters and batters in Winnipeg. Those sports, you know, they came natural, but I did practice. Um, but hockey was always just something that was just so hard to excel at for me. And so um, it wasn't something that I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Sorry. I'm going to do this for a living and I'm going to make sure. I just uh, did my best every single game. And every single game, when they played the national anthem, the coach knew not to stand behind me during the national anthem if I wasn't starting, because every game, this is true, and maybe a little gross, but I had to turn around and I would get sick on the bench. Because really? my, yeah, and my nerves were just, I was wired. And so um, anyway, so, um, I just had to do my best and I never worried about other guys would say, Hey, there's scouts here tonight watching this. And I didn't even care. I didn't even think about looking for scouts. I just wanted to do a good job and make my coach proud of his decision um, because he got criticized in the local paper for naming a rookie. And I, I just wasn't going to, you know, make sure that he didn't get ridiculed for doing this for me. So that's the reason that I had a, a really good year in Flint Fond. They let me play, they let me be myself, and I found myself through his confidence in me. So you redeem your coach because you're rookie of the year. You get drafted in the first round, which is, a, which is a, we want to ask a story uh, you get drafted first round by Montreal and by, by Phoenix. And so you have a choice to make. Now we've had on a lot of players that have played in the last 20, 30 years. 
they always have a draft story, go to Montreal, et cetera, et cetera, go through all that hype. When we talked to Brian Propp a year ago, that was like 79. He said, we didn't have that. I was on the family farm in Saskatchewan. And my dad told me the next day I was. So how did you hear about being drafted from both leagues? Well, again, I didn't even think about I was going to get drafted. I, honest to God, I didn't really even think about it. And then it was February, March of the year I was playing in Flint Fawn, and I happened to read a sports magazine, and it said Camp Connor is predicted to be a first-round draft choice um, in both leagues. And I, honest to God, I had to read that five times just to make sure that I was reading it because it was just nothing I thought I had the ability to do. So I remember phoning my dad up from Flint Flon and I said, Dad, go buy this paper. You're not going to believe what it says. <laughs> so, so that was my first inkling that, you know, maybe hockey would be in the future. And Brian's right. It, I was just sitting at home and uh, I knew it was the draft day. And uh, I got a phone call from Montreal Canadiens and they said, yeah, we've made your because Montreal, the year I got drafted, had five number one draft choices. Okay. And so uh, he said, we've made you our first pick in the first round, number five. And Clark Gillies was number four. And so, you know, because I didn't follow hockey growing up, I would rather play the game. I just, I never watched it. I honestly didn't. I didn't attend many games. And so, uh, when I, when I got drafted high uh, and by Montreal, I didn't know, really, I didn't know it was an honor. I was very ignorant. And so to me, I just thought, whoever pays me the most, that's where I'm going to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. simple. Yeah. And so my agent, he come back to me and he said, okay, you know, Montreal offered you a three-year contract. And this is in 74, so you've got to probably multiply it by 10 for the salaries today with inflation, etc. So Montreal offered me 150000 to sign. And then they offered me a three-year contract at, I'm going to say, 60, 70, and 80,000, or 70, 80, and 90,000, okay? On a, it's called a one-way contract. I said, okay. And then Phoenix offered me 200,000 and start in a five-year deal, starting at 90, 100, 100 and a quarter, 135, 150, plus he paid my lawyer fees. So I remember asking my agent, I said, well, is this everybody's final offer? And they said, yep. So I said, okay, I'll go to Phoenix. And all my buddies go, are you kidding me, man? Like, you know, I said, well, look what they're paying me. So, you know, we didn't have cell phones back in those days. And uh, so Scotty Bowman and there's a guy named Sam Pollock, who was one of the all time great GMs. Um, they read about it. They were in Buffalo and Sam Pollock didn't like to fly. So wherever they were, they were driving back to Montreal and they were in, in Boston getting in in Buffalo getting some gas and they picked up the Toronto Globe and Mail and he read that their first pick is going to the other league. So 
they got on the phone and I was at my girlfriend's house and I don't even know to this day because my parents said, well, they didn't call here to get the number. So I don't know how they got the number. And they phoned me there and, they, and Scotty Bowman, when he gets excited, he talks a mile a minute. And he's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, all Canadian players want to play for Toronto or Montreal. Again, I didn't follow, so I didn't know I was supposed to. Right? <laughs> so, so they, uh, I said, well, Scotty, uh, he said, did you sign with them? I said, no, 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 I didn't. He said, you know, I just told him I would. And he said, so you didn't sign with them. So why would you want to go there? I said, well, here's what you offered me. And here's what they offered me. He said, it's only money. That's it. I said, yeah. He goes, okay, stay on the phone. Cause he's got Sam Pollock right there. He said, I'm going to go get you another 200 grand, you know, and I don't know. That's maybe 2 million bucks or a million bucks. I don't know. So I said, well, uh, Scotty, I, I can't. He says, you said you didn't sign with him. I said, no, I, I didn't sign with him. He said, so what's the problem? I said, you know, I have my faults, but I'm an honest guy. And I said, I always take people at the word and I've been burned so many times. And I said, well, Scotty, I gave him my word that I would sign with him. He said, that doesn't matter. You didn't sign with him. You can switch. I said, no, I gave him my word. And, you know, in hindsight, Phoenix screwed me around big time. And so I kind of wished, you know, that I would, uh, but I, I'm glad I didn't because I gave him my word, but it, uh, it was a mistake going to the world hockey. It was an experience. I could tell you that, but I should have, because the guys that were drafted after me, remember I said there was five first rounders. So it, I was number five and, and more or less, this is accurate. Number seven was Doug Riseborough. Number eight or nine was Mario Tremblay. Number 12 was Rick Chartres. And then there was only 18 teams back in those days. And I forget who the 18th was. I don't think you ever made it. And so, you know, those other guys, they went to Montreal and they got sent to the fire team. And, uh, you know, they each probably have four, five, six Stanley Cup rings. Um, it was a powerhouse team. When you go to Montreal and you get sent to their farm team, it's like going to hockey school and you learn an awful lot. And, uh, you know, they're number one team, especially you guys living in Boston. Um, I know you're not as old as me, but you know, Boston would get eliminated year after year after year when they played the great Montreal Canadiens. And so those guys on the Montreal team, they were a core of us. There are probably 10 or 12 of them, I don't think I'm exaggerating, are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, they were just outstanding, and we were a tight, tight team. And so I regret I didn't have, you know, again, with Clark Gillies, number four, look at the career he had. I was number five. I didn't play with confidence. I didn't believe in myself. And Bowman, he didn't help me any because Steve Shutt told me, he said, you know, Cam, Bowman treats everybody bad, but I, I've been here seven years. And I got to say, he treats you worse than anybody he's ever treated before. I said, well, isn't that nice? So anyways, um, I, I do regret, you know, not not uh, going right to Montreal. What were the key differences in playing the WHA compared to the NHL? Was it pretty similar, like the playing style and the players, obviously? I mean, I well, well, yes and no. And, you know, um, what I didn't know, so I left the World Hockey 
and uh, I went to Montreal. And the biggest adjustment for me from the two leagues is for five years, even in junior, I would use an inch and three quarters curve on my stick, a great big curve. And the league in Montreal, I mean, in the NHL, you're only allowed half inch curve. And this was inch and three quarters. And so I learned how to use it. I played right wing. I shot left. I learned how to take it on my backhand. Right at the heel, there was only about an inch that was straight, and then it starts to bend. But I learned how to do it. Um, I did miss a lot of goals trying to use my backhand with that thing. It wasn't very good. Um, but so that was a big adjustment from the war hockey because I even in Montreal training camp, I still use my inch and three quarter sticks. And then it was like two days before the first exhibition game. And I remember we were playing the Bruins actually. And I got behind the Bruins defense and somebody gave me a breakaway pass and it hit the back, like it, it bounced off my stick because I, I, I didn't know how to use a straight stick anymore. And I was so embarrassed and uh, I just, I just, I just didn't do very well. But to answer your question, I thought the leagues would be pretty similar, but what I didn't know is, you know, with Montreal, when I got there, they had won three Stanley Cups in a row, and we could play Pittsburgh, who at that time was a lousy team, and Vancouver Canucks, they're lousy. They were like last place teams, and again, there was only 18 teams, and when we played these lousy teams, um, I couldn't believe how fast it was, and I said, man, everybody is so good. And I, um, I, I just thought it was a way better league than NHL than the World Hockey. So when I was picked up by Glenn Sather in the Edmonton Oilers, um, the draft was the expansion draft when the two leagues merged. I was in Montreal at the time. The draft was in Montreal. I know Glenn Sather. I played against him in the WHA. He knew, he knew what I could do. I had scored 35 goals one year for, for Houston Arrows. I made the all-star team. So he saw me when I was playing some good hockey. And he phoned me up. He said, Cam, we just made you the number one choice in the expansion draft. Buy a house. You'll be in Edmonton a long time. And he said, by the way, what are you doing right now? I said, oh, I'm just sitting around the house. He said, would you do me a favor? Um, we've got one of the players that's here in Montreal. He doesn't know anybody. He's just sitting in the hotel. Why don't you take him out for a beer? I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, what hotel and who am I going? So they told me the name of the hotel. And I uh, said, yeah, it's a guy named Wayne Gretzky. I said, oh, okay. I didn't know much about Wayne. So I phone up Wayne. I go pick him up. We go to the bar. And he asked me the same question. Cam, you played in the world hockey and now you're in the NHL and I've been in the world hockey. Is there a big difference between the two leagues? And I just explained to you my thinking about why the NHL was so good. But like I said, I didn't realize that every single team got up to play Montreal Canadiens. So I told Wayne in so many words, I said, well, Wayne, I know you've done pretty well in your career. I said, but it's going to take you a couple of years to adjust. And I remember he gave me that quizzical look. And, uh, you know, that year I played with him in Edmonton. He scored 136 points. He, he tied Marcel Dion for the scoring championship, but they gave it to Marcel because Marcel scored more goals. So now I played with Edmonton, an expansion team. Now the teams, when they came in, they played 
way different than they did with, uh, with Montreal. Um, so when they came in, I probably got more of a realistic view and look at the teams when they played Edmonton. They didn't get up like they did for Montreal. And so I would say at that point, they were both the same for the most part. There were some weaker teams in the, in the world hockey because they didn't have the funding and they just took anybody that could skate. So, so yeah, it, there, there was a difference, but mainly when I was with Montreal, I saw the difference. Right. Two questions, Cam, before we, uh, we actually move into uh, uh, the NHL. Your first, uh, you were uh, uh, Dave Semko's first pro fight back with the Bombers, I believe. And uh, you showed wait, him a wait, thing wait, or two. You, you said with who? Weren't you with the Bombers at that yeah. time? Yeah. Who did I fight? Larry fought. Let's see if you can say it right. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Who, who was I? Who was I playing? Semenko? Yeah, Semenko. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He no, that was in uh, Houston Arrows. Okay. And uh, and so I, I, I'm sorry I'm telling too many stories here, but no. yeah. So what happened in Houston is our coach's name was Bill Deneen. His son Kevin Deneen had a pretty good NHL career, so Kevin was like five or six wandering around the dressing room. And um, the coach came up to me one day and he said, Cam, um, you're from Winnipeg? I said, yeah. I said, you know Dave Semenko? Uh, I said, no, I, I don't. I think there's about five years difference between us. And I said, why? He goes, well, Dave Semenko's from Winnipeg and he plays for Brand New Week Kings. And uh, we own his rights in the WHA and Glenn Sather really wants this guy and I don't know if I should trade for him or trade them. And I, and I said, well, um, I got some buddies of mine in Winnipeg that go to all the junior games when Brandon comes into Winnipeg. Do you want me to phone them and see what they think? He said, yeah, would you do that? And let me know. So I phoned my buddy Riley, who is a electrician for CN Railways. He's like 23 or 24. And I explained what the coach was looking for. He says, well, Brandon is coming in this week for two games. I'll go watch and I'll let you know what I think. I said, okay. So Riley calls me up and he said, yeah, I was watching Semenko. And he said, he's flipping awful. He said, he's really bad. <laughs> now, I said, okay. So I told the coach, he goes, oh, okay. So he traded him to, to Edmonton. Now, I was out for lunch with Semenko a few years back before his death. And I was pretty tight with Dave when we played. And I said, Dave, do you know how you got to Edmonton? He said, well, yeah. He said, I was traded for. I said, well, sort of. And so I told him this story and he listens and he's listening. And he said, wait a second. He said, you mean some guy from CN Railways is, uh, is the <laughs> rail line? He said, do you mean some guy from CN Railways determined my hockey future? I said, yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. And so I said, you should be thankful because he was on the Oilers payroll for 40 something years. So that was the best thing that ever happened to him. You play with a, another sort of inf hockey infamous player, uh, Jerry Rollins. Okay. Do you remember in, Jerry? In Flint, yeah, I played with him in Flint Flon and uh, we had a fight. And Did you win? What, on the team? Oh, yeah. What it was is 
Patty Janelle, our flint flung coach, took us all, the whole hockey team, out for a long walk. And this was during training camp. And he would have us form a big circle. And then he would call two guys to go in the middle of the circle to have a fight. <laughs> and so, so it, 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 it wasn't swing them fight. It was like grab each other and throw each other down. Because Patty wanted a tough team. And Jerry, he was always cocky and very confident in himself. But he didn't know my whole life. I used to, you know, between street fighting and wrestling, the guys, like all my neighbors were older than me. So I used to have to wrestle with those guys and I got good. And I had my summer jobs was working construction, lifting concrete all day. Those cinder blocks, you know what cinder blocks are? Mm -hmm. I had to pile those 2000 of those a day. You take them <laughs> off of bread rocks. And so my arms got big and strong. And, and so anyway, so they call Rollins and I, the coach said, yeah, you guys see in the middle. I swear to God, uh, I grabbed him. I had him on his back in two seconds, you know? And so I, I, I think Patty Janelle said, I might make this guy captain. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I know Jerry for sure. Oh, that's great. Um, so you go to Houston and of course uh, you told many stories, but for our listeners that might not know, you, you play with the house, you get to play with Gordy and I think, um, listening, uh, it might have been your, your podcast or another uh, show that you were on. Uh, Gordy was not, I went with you and maybe some other players to see the famous Slapshot movie of the day, and Gordy didn't like it. Oh, didn't I went, like it. It, yeah, it was just Gordy and I. And actually, we were in Edmonton to play the WHA Edmonton Oilers. And Slapshot was at the theater. We had some time to kill the night before. So Gordy said, hey, Let's go to the game. I said, okay. So just Gordy and I went and we we or go to the movie. So we watched the Slapshot movie. And, and I know that when we walked out of there, you know, and I was embarrassed too. In my mind, you know, a lot of people that watched the movie, they liked it. But maybe as a hockey player, um, I was embarrassed at the mentality they showed of those hockey players playing with toys on their bed and right. and and you know we just went oh man that doesn't really represent us very well um, a lot of it was pretty true in the world hockey it was like i fought all those guys in those movies right in that slap shot movie like i fought like they were called hansen brothers but they were really carlson brothers i fought all those guys i fought dave hansen like everybody on that team that was tough brackenberry i fought them Ogie Oglethorpe, all those guys. Oh, okay. Fought all those guys, right? So, who were, were the Carlson brothers in particular? Were they, were they actually that tough or, or not? Two out of the three were tough. And uh, so, Jack Carlson, I, I, uh, we had a bench brawl, uh, uh, like the whole benches when I played in Phoenix, empty. You're not going to see that anymore in hockey. The benches emptied. And I just finished fighting Paul Hogram. I just finished my shift and I just fought Hogram. And then the coach, he brought up the Carlsons and a bunch of the tough guys to play Phoenix. And they told them, if you guys don't cause some shit out tonight, you're going back to the farm team. Mm -hmm. And so you can tell when all the gloves are off, all their tough guys, their hands were taped like boxers, right? It was almost like the Christians and lions. Holy cow. <laughs> So there was a guy named 
you can look him up. His name was Kurt Brackenberry. He was, uh, he was built like Stan Jonathan, but only bigger. And uh, he was tough. So I just finished my fight and I just finished my shift. He come off the bench and he grabs me by the back of my jersey and pulls me off Holgram. And then we go at it. And then we push each other over the boards and we're catching our breath and we're both over the boards, kind of hold on to each other. And then he says to me, you ready to go again? I said, nope, because I was tired. So he gave you another 30 seconds. He said, you ready now? I said, yep. So we <laughs> let go and we went at it again and got each other over the boards. And then he said, you ready again? I said, yep. And we fought a third time. And then we're over the boards again. And then Brack says to me, Hey, Cam, why don't we fight somebody else? I said, okay. So we, spread the we love. Just, spread the love. So we just let go and we just got involved. And so, so in that brawl, um, Jack Carlson, oh, he cut a couple of our guys really bad around the eyes in the brawl. And so I'd fought Jack Carlson before, and I remember. I was able to get him down and I was on top of him and it, it felt like I was riding a Brahma bull. He was six, three, and I don't know what he weighed, but he was extremely strong. And I just said, I'm not letting this guy up. I can tell you that. And I could feel the strength. Now, one thing you shouldn't do is, is read the program before the game. And I, there was a Minnesota Fighting Saints program in our dressing room. So I'm looking at it and Jack Carlson's quote, he says, I'm not afraid of anybody in this league. The only guy I would ever be afraid of is my older brother. And I believe his name was Steve. And the other one is Jeff. So I might have him mixed up because one of those two couldn't fight. But the other one, according to Jack, he was by far the toughest guy. And he said, I would never fight that guy. He's so tough. And I'm going, oh, my God, there's somebody tougher than Jack. So we get out there the first period and uh, the Minnesota North Stars were taken on the Montreal Canadian on, on the other side of town. And they, in Montreal had won the cup three years in a row and uh, they were the Stanley cup champions. And um, they drew just over 6,000 people. And you can't tell me fighting doesn't draw. And when we took on the fighting saints, there was over 18,000 at our game. <laughs> so the whole first period, like they had a tough team and they ran the shit out of us. And excuse my language, they ran, oh. the, heck, they ran the heck out of us. And so even me, they ran me a few times. I took it. And, but I wasn't feeling very good about taking it. And so between the first and second period, I just told myself, man up. You got to be a man. Like, what are you doing taking that? You be a man. So I psyched myself up. That's not going to happen again. And the toughest Carlson was carrying the puck out of his end. And he got to center ice and he's skating with your head down. You don't skate with your head down because bad things will happen. Well, I ran him all the way from my end and I hit him so hard at center ice. And he actually flew in the air and he's in the air. He's throwing his gloves off. And I said, oh, no. So we square off in front of the fans and they're waiting for this. And so, you know, we got the Dukes up. And uh, I blank out when I fight, like I blank out. And so we square off and it was just it's spontaneous. I, I can't even, I can't say it was planned what it was going to do. I just saw something and then I started throwing them and I hit them with a left, a right, a left. And down he went. 
and he got up shaking his head like the Tasmanian devil. And he wants to get at me bad. And I'm thinking the linesman have got him. I said, okay, that's good. The linesman's not letting him at me. I might've got lucky there. I don't know. And so then there was a referee by the name of Bill Friday. Oh. <laughs> and so Bill, he's the referee. So he's, Bill saw me fight before. And he's, you know, again, the linesman's not letting him go. And then Bill says, okay, Carlson, you want to fight Connors again? Let him go. And I went, what are you doing, Bill? I said, I, I don't know if I could do that again. And so we square off again. And then Carlson put his hands down and skated to the penalty box. And uh, the rest of the night, it was calm. Nobody ran us anymore. Nobody bothered me anymore. So, <clears throat> so, yeah, those two of the three Carlsons were tough. You play uh, uh, with Montreal, so you get to Montreal, and you talked a little bit about it. I mean, you were able to get up and play in Montreal, and, and like you talked about, uh, just a dynasty team. And the players from the Boston Bruins fan side, I mean, you know, I'm talking to the enemy right now here. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But there's no question that Montreal was just, you know, the, the more dominant team, Andrew. Right. But so many great players. Ken Dryden, I know, I went to bat for you with uh, Bowman. Um, but, uh, I'd like to talk about the guy I hated as a kid, uh, totally loved as a, as a, as a, as a young adult and respect more than anybody as a, as a former player, uh, Guy Lafleur. Um, obviously, you know, he's running around, he had the long hair, Andrew, oh, right. he was, and man, was he fast. Um, I know you've got a few, you know, geese stories, but can you give us a little bit about what the man is like? You know, I didn't know these players. I, as I said, I'd never followed hockey. So when I got there, I might have heard some names, but I didn't know much about them. And um, it just so happens that Lefleur and I, we live pretty close to each other. And uh, Dryden lived pretty close. Lemaire, Cornway, we all lived in the same area. So we used to commute back and forth to the airports and so on. And I uh, got to know Guy and... Uh, you know, when we won the Stanley Cup, Guy asked me if I want to go drinking with him. I said, absolutely. So it's just him and I. And I got to know Guy as a person. And um, he, you know, it's unfortunate that probably in every sports, there's a few prima donnas and, you know, the press clippings go to their head. I hope hockey players less than anybody, you know, other sports. Um, but the Fleur, he's like, you know, Gretzky, he couldn't go anywhere in Edmonton. He couldn't go anywhere in Montreal um, without people recognizing him. In fact, people, if we went out to the bar, the people used to phone and squeal on us and tell the coach how much we've been drinking and what we had and where we were. And so it was, it was pretty dangerous. So with Lafleur, I got to know him as a person. And um, he, you hear people say, oh, he'd give you the shirt off his back. But Guy was like that. He never expected anything. I actually have uh, heard about him on an airplane. Somebody was admiring his watch. He, he just took his watch off. I don't know. This is smart, but he gave the guy his watch. Wow. And I, I was going to say, Guy, I like that watch. How about so yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't. But Guy was a fabulous person. And uh, one of the things that really that I did admire about him, we had played the Bruins. And uh, we were playing them in the semifinals in the playoffs. 
Um, and I didn't, I got food poisoning in Boston, so I didn't get to play the final uh, playoff game against the Rangers for the Stanley Cup. Um, and so the Bruins, as you know, back in those days, they had a tough team. They, I could name you four or five scary guys. And so the idea was intimidation out there. And so they would run some of our players and they would run the floor because he was so good. And uh, they would take cheap shots at him. And I played on teams when some of the stars would come back to the bench and say, do you see what he did? Go get somebody to get that guy. They would actually say that. And the flirt never said a word. And we're in the shower after one of the games against the Bruins. And I look at the flirt. He has so many like welts on his body, his back, his sides. His... So I said, what happened to you? He said, oh, the Boston Bruins with his French accents. They spear me and they slash me. He said, he never took a step backwards. Wow. He didn't slow down. And uh, he he had more guts than I did. Like he he knew he was going to get it, but he didn't care. He just gave it everything he had every single shift. And and I admire that man, Gordy Howe and him. And I played with Phil Esposito and Gretzky and Messier and Kevin Lowe and a lot of the great Canadians. Um, but by far, I would say that those two. Cordy Howe and Gila Fleur are my favorite. They're just, they think of others. And I like that trait in those guys. Now, you obviously have a special moment, uh, that playoff series where uh, you, you guys won the Stanley, uh, Stanley Cup. It was against Toronto, game three. Yeah, the just goal. before the finals. Yep, yep, the goal. But when you watch the goal, it, it was a fluke, right? But in today's day, that's a that's a that's so, a shootout move now. So you talk about it is. I it was is. ahead of my time. I was ahead of my time. Exactly. Yeah, but wait, wait. So and you know, Kim, you probably talked about it a million times, but Andrew and I watched this at least 30 times. And you know, from our couch, our fan base GM couch, we've analyzed this goal. Yeah. It's a goal scored goal. You make sure that you're onside, but yet you got a step. You know, the puck's already in, you're onside, you beat the defenseman, you were going to score, you were going from the backhand to the forehand. Yeah. You know, poor Mike Palantir, he was already down like he normally, no, this this is back when the goalies used to flop right. around and he used to yeah. do that. It was going in regardless. Uh, but uh, to me, it was everything up to that point. That That's uh, that's almost like a Guy Lafleur. Well, I mean, he jumped, he, he got behind the defenseman right at the blue line. Well, I'd love to know your reaction because I'm sure when you try to pull to the forehand, you're expecting the puck and you look, the puck's already going in. So, yeah, when I was, you know, I'd sat on the bench the whole game. I didn't even get a shift, but I always told myself, Palmateer was a little petite goalie. And when you hit the top of the circle to take a shot, you put your head down to watch the puck. He comes charging over his net and he has to use the angles. So I just said, if I ever get my chance, I'm going to fake put my head down and then curl it. And then I should have in theory, an empty net. So I had the right idea. Um, but I also, the guy on the ice from the Leafs, the closest guy defenseman, his name is Dave Hutchinson. Dave was the tough boy and he plays a rough game. And I saw him out of the corner of my eye coming and I knew I had to turn towards him. And, you know, when you're in the stands or I get to watch it on replay, 
you know, you realize you got more time than you think. But when you're at ice level, as I'm coming across, I swear, I'm waiting for Hutchison to cross-check me in the head. Because back in those days, you didn't even get penalties for that stuff. And so I'm, I'm ready to cut across, and I'm kind of bracing myself to get whacked in the head with a cross-check. And it's absolutely... I had the right move, but it did as I was going from backhand to forehand. The puck found its own way between the goalie's legs and it went in. And I noticed my right foot hit Palmateer's right foot. And we both, I kind of tumbled. And, um, you know, it was uh, just wonderful. I could see that the guys in the team, I, 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 I know they respected me because when I scored that goal, I was pretty happy, but I believe a lot of them were even happier for me. And so they made me feel pretty good. Well, and your team had a lot of respect for you, Cam, because, uh, and correct me if the story's incorrect, but I thought I had read that uh, at the time you had played eight playoff games that year. I'll mention that as well. But yeah. according to the NHL, because you, you had gotten sick, you were a bit injured near the end, they said that you didn't have enough playoff games that you participated in to have your name engraved on the cup, but the entire team, I guess the story is the players said, if your name isn't on the cup, they don't want their name on the cup. Is that true? And if it is, that had to mean a lot to you, especially as a rookie, right? You know, I had no idea. I just saw the cup came out. My name was on it. I, I honestly, it was 15 years after 20 years after I had no idea that this was going on. And um, as it worked out, um, I had heard it. And um, the rule was that you had to play 40 regular season games. Now, I only got 23 in because, you know, they only lost one player when I joined them. They lost one player from the Stanley Cup team. And they added Mark Napier, Pat Hughes, myself, and a Boston boy named Rod Langway. And so, you know, we're all competing. And uh, again, I didn't, I didn't represent myself very well in Boston, in, in, in Montreal that year. I mean, I can't blame it on anybody else but myself. I just didn't play the kind of hockey I'm capable of. And, uh, but I, I kept my mouth shut. And the reporters would always say, Cam, you should be getting more ice time. And why aren't they dressing you? I, I just said, they got their reason. I never took the bait. I never said a word. And I think the guys appreciated it. And whenever I was in the stands, which was quite a bit, and I noticed something from the stands, I go down between periods and I pointed out to the guys, I just did my best to try to help any way I could. And so years later, I had heard and the, and the story goes, it's just like you said, our player representative, which was Dryden, Doug Riseborough, and, uh, and Ganey, they had said that the league had said, okay, he didn't play 40 games and he didn't play in that final playoff series. So his name's not going to be on the Stanley Cup, nor will Yvonne Cornway's name be on the Stanley Cup. Now, you know, if, if you follow the hockey from 60s and 70s, Yvonne Cornway was, he's a, he's got, you know, the, Montreal Canadian logo tattooed on him, yeah. right? And so they weren't going to put our name on it. So these guys just stepped up. I don't know if they had a vote with the team members, but they just said, hey, they're on our team. I was never sent to the farm team. Cornway, 
there's no need to defend what he's done in the game of hockey. And they just said, just put the name Montreal Canadiens on. That's it. And the league, they kind of have to back down because uh, there's no record on the Stanley Cup team. Everybody's got their name on and just have that. So they, uh, they, they said, we'll make an exception. So again, I didn't know that this was going on. It was many, many years later that I found that out. And, uh, you know, really, I've got the memories. I've got a Stanley Cup ring. So if my name wasn't on, you know, I would have felt bad, but I could live with it. But where the positive is, is my kids. And maybe some friends of mine, when they see the Stanley Cup, or you can go to Toronto and see the Hockey Hall of Fame, and they got a replica in there, and they could spin it around and say, that's my dad, or that's my brother. And, you know, that's why I was grateful. Do you think it's it, it shows you, well, let me ask you this, the teammates stepping up for another teammate in that manner, what the, what the Montreal player reps did, do you think that's a lot of hockey teams in general, or, and I hate to say it as a Bruins fan, is that Montreal specific? Because it reminds me just of a small story we had on Shane Corson on, and he talked about how when he, his rookie year, he was a little immature and he was slamming the door a little bit too much for Pat Burns to coach at the time. And Burns uh, told him, you're done in the second period. Get off the bench. And you know, uh, Larry, yeah. Larry Robinson had to go to bat and say, give the kid a chance. Let me work with him. And you play with Larry. Yeah. You know, I would like to say that all teams are equal and they all believe in each other. That's not the case. There are some teams I played for, which I won't really say who, but they're all individuals. And uh, all they care about is their own stats. And uh, I could, like, I'd love to name a few players because they're the phoniest guys. And so you just never know. Uh, but Montreal, I swear, like those guys, they cared about each other. Nobody was phony. And um, we, we hung off, you know, uh, when we weren't playing, we hung around together off the ice. And we played as a unit on the ice because of that. So I, I would like to think that every team would be like that, but I got to say, probably not. I do want to jump to uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, uh, just a sec, because uh, number one, he deserves it. But on your podcast, you told a story about uh, the tenacity of, of, of Piper, of you guys wrestling around. And if you actually had him down on the ground, yeah. He was, he just couldn't take it. And he was just so driven to be a winner, no matter what it was, that you'd have to let him win or he'd go you, nuts. You know, as teenagers, um, I outweighed him by 10 pounds. In Flin Flon, I weighed 191 pounds. I didn't have any fat on me. And uh, I was pretty strong. And Rod was very strong, but he was 181 pounds. And the difference was in the legs because I played all these sports. Rod didn't. And so, you know, I was able to bug him about his skinny legs. <laughs> and um, so, you know, with Rod, he'd always want to wrestle. And so we wrestle. And I, and I felt at the time, you know, when, you know, I remember one time he, you know, like he got me down and I knew I had some extra strength still that I could get him off me. But I just knew even when I was on him that 
if I came out to Victor or I flipped him over, he wouldn't quit. He'd say, fuck this. He'd say, no, fine. He'd say let's, let's, let's have another one. I said, I don't want another one. Because it was always rough. Like he just couldn't quit. And so I, I just said, it's not worth it. So I'll just, okay, he got me. But he just, he just, and you know, as we got older, that's what he did for a living. Okay, it wouldn't have been close. But uh, he just, uh, he was just like a, he, he just couldn't handle losing, I guarantee you. We, uh, uh, I, I would love, we want to be respectful for your time. When you go on the New York Rangers, uh, you know, you play with Esposito, a lot of those greats. We don't have time, but I would love to hear a Ron Duguay story. Oh, no. Even Andrew knows about Ron Duguay, what a character he is. Hey, you didn't do those Jordash jean commercials, did you, by the way? <laughs> I would have liked to have done it because they paid pretty well. Oh. <laughs> but but maybe my butt wasn't as cute as Ron, Ron Duguay's. I don't know. Oh, boy. Well, anyway, so, uh, you know... Uh, in the uh, latter part of Korea, you get sent out from New York to Tulsa. Here's where our Tulsa Oiler fans. Yeah. So here's the background for Andrew, in case he doesn't know. And, and we do have uh, quite a bit we've had on a lot of Tulsa Oiler players. Uh, so we have a, a fan base here in, in Tulsa that listen. So 1983-84, Tulsa Oilers, Andrew, CHL's in trouble. Tulsa goes into bankruptcy. They're in receivership. And uh, Kim, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the other teams had to keep the team afloat, not to mess up the schedule. And there wasn't many home games towards the second half of the season for Tulsa. Uh, you play under the great coach, Tom Webster, which I'd love to hear some stories about Tom, but you guys go on the road six weeks, seven weeks straight, and you end up winning the whole cup. Now there is a banner, I believe in the mm -hmm. BOK center, yep. but the background story is the whole league, I think folded after that year. But what these guys went through to win the cup, they didn't have a home game. Well, you know, I don't know the time frames. And when you say six, seven weeks on the road, I swear to God, if you hadn't have said that, I would have said four months on the road. Like it was <laughs> long. And playing in Tulsa, like the Rangers, the GM was Craig Patrick. And honestly, he couldn't care less about the farm team. Like he couldn't care less. And, um, so you go to Tulsa and they play, it's called the Cow Palace Arena. And uh, it was just a hole. Like the Zamboni, and this isn't even trying to be funny. The Zamboni was from 1948. It was, the, I've never seen one so old and so cheap. and break down on the ice all the time. We never got to play in the, uh, practice in the arena we played in. And uh, every practice we either had to go to uh oklahoma city which if i remember correctly was an hour drive spend the night there if we want to use our sticks and pucks otherwise we stayed in in tulsa and we would skate at a mall and no sticks and pucks allowed so we put full gear on and we use a nerf football and so the defense would be behind the net and he throw the ball up to the winger the winger would skate throw it to the centerman over back to the winger and that's how we would practice with a Nerf football. Yeah. And it, it was a joke. And uh, in the showers, first of all, the dressing room had one heater and it was so cold in there. And then, so after sweating, you go in the showers and this is not exaggerated. This is the truth. They had a fire hose. So, so Andrew, see you're on our team 
and we were in the shower, okay? I put the hose on you, you'd lather down and, uh, and then I'd rinse it off you, then it's my turn. You'd have to hold the hose and then I would soap myself. And that's what we had to do with the whole hockey team is use a fire hose. And then our goalies would have to, uh, have to practice they would stand in a net outside the arena and we'd shoot tennis balls at them. And so it was just awful. So then they said we could fold and some of you players would be picked up by other teams, but a lot of you, your career is over. So as a team, we said, we'll play every game on the road. And, you know, we got to, just like with Montreal, we got to care about each other. And um, as players, we kind of put our own little system in place that we knew would win. And um, we had great goaltending. We had a guy named Johnny Van Beesbrook in net. And so he would stop the puck. And, um, you know, we won. And uh, we won the whole Central Hockey League championship. And uh, George McPhee was on our team that year. I don't know if you remember George. George was the GM for Vegas. Now he's the president. And so George was with us. I got, well, I don't know if I should tell you those stories, but uh, so yeah, we won it all. And, and then when, so we got some team rings and I just happened to be doing something at a jeweler and I showed the jeweler, I said, what's this ring worth? He looked at it and he goes, maybe $150. Like that's the cheapest ring I ever saw in my life. So he didn't care, you know, what we did all year long. He didn't want to spend any money on this hockey team. Wow. Jeez. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Not the Tulsa Oilers that you know today. No, no. not at all. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So Cam, we want to um, kind of end with um, these lightning round questions. It might be a name. You might have a story. Feel free. Um, you know, I mean, we've, we've got the time. I'm not sure if you do, but we're going to. No, I, I, I don't because I've actually bored my son's computer because mine wasn't working today. <laughs> so so I, I know he's got to get back to you know he's working from home so he's got to so we'll, we uh, do this we'll, uh, we'll ask these quick and we'll say goodbye so first thing that pops into your mind favorite line mate in your whole career wow uh, that was You know, I played for quite a few teams, so you're making me go back. Well, you know what? He, he probably John Tonelli. Okay. In Which, Houston. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I said John Tonelli when I played in Houston. Which arena had the worst ice conditions? Minus Tulsa. Yeah, <laughs> just you took the words yeah. out of my mouth. Yeah, except Tulsa. Uh, without a doubt, Madison Square Gardens, Rangers, because. Oh, okay. The circus would be finished at 4.30. You could still smell the elephants when you came in. Oh. And and when you went for warm-up, you would have you, – you, you would be skating on concrete. It wasn't until the third period when the ice would find it by far Madison Square. The toughest goalie to play against? Um – you know, on any given night, right? I mean, I remember in the World Hockey Plate against Cheevers, he did a damn good job. Esposito did a good job. I could tell you, practicing against Dryden, it was hard to score on him, even in practice, and you get so much time. Um, I, I, I would, I would probably have to say, you know, if I could pick my own teammate, I'm going to say Dryden. 
Randy was hard. So this goes back to even juniors, but who was the toughest enforcer you fought? Well, you know, junior, just because I probably won them all. I can't see, you know, but I would say for me, I never did fight Stab Jonathan. I just didn't get to play enough against the Bruins. And and if somebody sends me out to get somebody to fight, I, I tend not to do that because I, I just don't want to be a, the goon. If you give me a regular shift, it's going to happen and I'd fight. But probably uh, Ben Wilson, I had broke my... I cracked my kneecap in Edmonton and I just got back in my first game back. I got in a fight with a guy named Keith Brown and I broke my hand on his head for the second time. I broke my hand and then they just, they don't, most times you get a cash, you're supposed to leave it on about six weeks, not in hockey. They take it off before two weeks is even up. And so your hand is like a little girl's hand. There's no strength in it. And then I have to fight Ben Wilson because he elbowed me in the head in Edmonton. So I had to fight him and, um, you know, I did okay. I could have done better with two hands, but I could only fight him really with one hand and it didn't have a lot of strength. So I'd say Ben Wilson was pretty damn tough. What player had the ability to get under your skin the most? Johnny McKenzie. Craziest or most embarrassing thing to happen to you during a warm-up or a game? Uh, well, I had a guy on my team named Kim Claxon. You have to Google that guy. Oh, I played with him in Flint Flon. I, I fought him um, the year before. He fought Jonathan. He fought uh, uh, O'Reilly and Secord. I think all in the same game when he that played game. for Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he was he. And I had him on my podcast one day and I said, like, where do you get that guts? He said, well, I just wanted to challenge myself, but he was afraid of nobody. And so what Claxon used to do is in warmups, the other teams on the other side, he would go full blast all around in their end, go behind the net. So some teams would have three, because they knew we'd do this, three, four, five guys standing behind the net. Clacker never broke a stride. He'd go in like a bowling ball and just try to knock them all over. Like he had more <laughs> guts. So I, I'd have to say, uh, you know, Kim Claxon in warm up. Well, Kim, you've got the strongest, fastest right uppercut I've ever seen in any NHL player, including the uh, not so tough guys of today's yeah, NHL. That's true. It's a little sad. You have your own podcast with your son, Chris, View from the Penalty Box. Um, and what's great is where we have to do a weekly show, he can do a show whenever he wants. Uh, but when can we expect some more podcasts? It is a, uh, a lesson in hockey history, and it is so entertaining. Oh, thank you, sir. Um, you know, we kind of took a little break and uh, with COVID and different reasons. And uh, we're looking at probably getting together in the next four to five weeks to start it all over again. Yeah, awesome. please do the stories. And Thank again, I, I think you have about 50 or so episodes and uh, I've caught about 43 of them. Wow. And, Thank man, you. They're, they're, they're just fascinating uh, to listen to. And, uh, you know, you're, you're truly a, a, a hockey legend. You might not think so, but you're also a gentleman. We can't thank you enough for coming on our podcast and uh, we wish you nothing but the best. Yeah. Thank you, Cam. Well, guys, thank you so much, and uh, it's a pleasure. Really, it is. And keep up the good work.
Thank you. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, old school. Very uh, crazy stories, you know, like everything was so loosey-goosey back in the day, whether you're talking about juniors, WHA, NHL. I mean, it's just kind of like, dude, it's kind of wild, wild west back in the day. If our younger listeners, um, they, they need to uh, Google Cam and take a look at the photos. I mean, this guy was built like you don't know you know, in the seventies when, and, and again, uh, follow him on social media. Uh, he's pretty much everywhere. Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, Instagram, uh, that inch and a quarter stick is on there. The blade, you won't believe it. I, I, I don't know how, you know, I wouldn't be able to score anything with the blade that way. My, right. my shots would be up into the, into the rafters. Yeah. Um, just a wonderful guy. Like I said, a gentleman, a man of his word, uh, and, uh, just a hell of a fighter. And, we didn't get to talk too much about it, but he was fast too. Yeah. He was a fast skater. Yeah. So we want to thank him, WHA and NHL. Yep. And Tulsa Oiler, even though it wasn't a good experience. Right. For him, right. Yep. But, but still, it is what it is. Yep. So it's part of Tulsa's history as well. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate everybody tuning in today. And uh, don't forget to tune into the previous episode with our last talk with my, just my father and I. And Go to the end of the episode. Look at or listen to all the upcoming guests we have coming yes. up. Yes, next week we have. I don't know. We have Rapid City head coach. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Bert. Bertie's yep. coming in. Scott Bert. Um, so we're going to talk with him as well. So uh, we wish everybody well. We're run, running a little long here today, so we'll end it here. All right. Thank you. Thank you.